Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vines for November 7th, 2021. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, big show tonight. Uh, we have an outstanding guest. I think he's been on at least two times before. Also, his wife has been on the show as well. Um, probably one of the few people that we've had the husband and the wife on both. Uh, Jason Stanford is going to come on in. Usually he talks to us about uh, Texas politics, but tonight he is the co-author of a book that came out in the last few months called Forget the Alamo, um, a very, very interesting story about really digging to the truth of a um, a myth uh, in a lot of ways or a historical event. Um, and so Jason's going to join us and tell us all about that book. And so that'll be very interesting. And we have so much um, to cover before and after that as well. There were elections on Tuesday that we really want to get into. And also there was a major piece of legislation passed Friday night. And so we're going to do our best to cover all that. So let's get right into it. And uh, the elections on Tuesday night, there were both statewide elections in New Jersey and Virginia, and there were municipal elections all across the country. But the, um, the results that seem to have the most national uh, implications or spun as having the most national implications were the two statewide races in New Jersey and Virginia. And even though they were split in which party won those races. The trend lines were pretty consistent um, towards the Republican Party. Uh, Catherine, what were your thoughts on those two outcomes? Well, you know, we had talked about it a lot, and um, I have to credit Tim for his predictions on this one, uh, on Virginia. Um, it, it was uh, – it was hard to take, you know, as a you know lifelong Democrat to see uh, Virginia slip that way. Um, but I think uh, hopefully we learned a lesson, uh, probably most importantly about education and about uh, the Republicans taking things out of context and running with it and not getting any pushback from the media. And also, I mean, I'll be honest, I, uh, I wasn't too excited about um, Terry McAuliffe. I think sometimes people are looking for something new and he had been governor before. And I just, sometimes I think that that can be a mistake. So I think there's a lot to learn, a lot to look at, a lot of numbers to look at, um, and I'm sure you all have done a lot of that, so I'm sure you'll talk about it. Yeah, and I'll say this. Um, I'm not going to accuse Terry McAuliffe of being Mr. Electricity. He, he's a fundraising guy. He's a function guy. 
Um, but he was pretty popular in his term as governor. Um, folks like Lowell, who are very progressive, um, spoke very highly of Terry McAuliffe's term as governor. And if Phil Murphy's results would have been vastly different from Terry McAuliffe, I think you might could lay the blame on that campaign. But since the trend towards Republicans were so uniform between those two campaigns and people had a much better impression of Phil Murphy, then you're starting to go, how much can you really say, oh, it's Terry McAuliffe? Because then you may be missing the bigger lessons that are going to come up in future elections, which is really what you've got to do. Odds are Terry McAuliffe's not going to be on the ballot um, anytime soon, if ever again. But lots and lots of other Democrats are. We've got to learn the right lessons. Our other folks are going to suffer that same fate. Um, Kim, your yeah, thoughts? well, that's why I put okay. that's why I put that as last as my last yeah. comment. Yeah, Kim. Well, it's a tough loss in Virginia, but in 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 looking at the last month of the race, it, it was no real surprise. I mean, look, Yunkin campaign ran a very good race he was just if you watch the two candidates you had no particular politics or or any thoughts on what either would do uh, when they became governor Yunkin appeared to be the better candidate he had the wind at his back he had uh, a good plan of attack uh, McAuliffe made a couple of really big mistakes. That opening that he gave Youngkin on education was just was just critical. That might have been the one that finally took him down. And yeah, I, I know the trajectory of both the major races seemed to be somewhat the same, but I'm looking right now at the latest count in New Jersey as of eight hours ago. They they still haven't counted all the votes up there. Uh, Murphy now sits at 50.9, and uh, Schiaparelli is at 48.3. So he's opened it up just a little bit, although the polls were showing anywhere from an 8- to 12-point race. Uh, so it was a lot closer than people thought it was going to be. It's about 66,000 votes right now. Um Overall, nationally, you cannot say it was a good night for Democrats. It, it, it just wasn't uh, because we, we've talked through the week, as you know, about some other races here and there in Pennsylvania and other places that uh, basically Democrats lost a lot of voters from what they had two years ago. It, it appears in Virginia that – Suburban voters really uh, turned back toward the Republicans. You know, maybe we made a mistake, guys. In 2016, 2018, 2020, educated suburban voters, and in particular white women, had come toward the Democratic Party in big numbers. I think we thought those voters were just gravitating to us solely on the issues. And looking back now, that might have been a mistake. It might have been because they couldn't stomach Donald Trump, and he drove them away from their party. And when he was no longer on the ballot and in the White House anymore, 
those voters might have simply reverted to form. That would explain both New Jersey and Virginia. What do you think? Yeah, I think there's – and it's, I'll say this. I think it's easier to look at Virginia than New Jersey um, because – or it's probably more valuable because New Jersey is the most suburban state in the country, but that's kind of all it is. It doesn't have a major city. I mean, it, it's a suburb of New York, a suburb of Philadelphia. It doesn't have a um, rural area, um, so to speak. So it's, it, it gives you one piece of the puzzle. Where in um, Virginia, you get all three. You have suburbs, you have some cities, and you have rural area. And if you look at it, in the suburbs, we lost ground, Tim, with the exact voters you talked about, um, suburban women in particular. Uh, some places with highly educated voters, we didn't lose much at all, maybe even gain some places, um, but it really had to be you know, higher education levels to, to realize that in the, the D.C. suburbs. And then um, in the rural areas, a lot of people, and probably myself, thought there's really nowhere else to go. I mean, you can't go to zero, can you? Well, I still don't think you can go to zero, but you can get a lot lower than, than I had anticipated. And so we lost um, vote in the rural area. Now, some of that may be that the Republicans are figuring out how to a, turn out those Donald Trump voters in other races and then also maybe even add to that coalition somehow. I'm thinking if we looked at it, probably some of the um, younger voters that do vote in those rural areas may be more Republican-leaning, um, which that'll continue to be an issue for you know cycles now. And then finally, in some areas where there's African-American voters, um, voters of color in something like the Hampton Roads area, uh, Norfolk, uh, Virginia Beach, um, Newport News, there was a drop-off and turnout. So you have three pieces, if you will, to work on. And I think if people look at just one of those pieces and want to fix it exclusively and ignore the other two, it's going to be a real problem. You're going to have to fix all three. And people are probably like, that's hard. That's too hard. Well, think about a football team. Usually when you win or lose a game, you win a little bit on defense, you win a little bit on offense, and you win a little bit on special teams. There's three phases of the game. And this, there's three phases. You're going to have to work on all of them. I read an article um, by Dan Pfeiffer like, the day after the election on the message box, um, advisor to um, Barack Obama, and he said you've got to do more than one thing. You can't just all fix it all on one. Uh, some other troubling signs, we actually – lost Latino voters in Virginia. It was very close, but we lost Latino voters. And Republicans did better. They were in double figures with African-American voters. And I, so I think you're going to see Republicans, if we don't try to take back some of this um, high school-educated white vote and play offense with them, you're going to see Republicans be able to play offense with voters of color and do even better there and they're going to run more African-American and Latino candidates. And you look at their Republican ticket. They had an African-American woman for lieutenant governor, and they had a Latino uh, candidate for uh, attorney general. And if you think about this, in the South, you have one statewide African-American elected candidate that I know of, and that's Raphael Warnock. Republicans are going to have at least three, and I haven't gone through all the lists, 
around, but I know they're going to have Tim Scott, Winsome Sears, and the Attorney General of Kentucky. Um, so you see them doing what we didn't think they could do to diversify their party, and they're going to continue to do this. And so it's a really tricky calculation in which you're going to have to do all these things. Catherine, how difficult do you think it's going to be to try to, uh, you know, fight on several, um, you know, plateaus or platforms, if you will? It doesn't matter how difficult it is. We have to do it, um, and we should be able to. We have a lot of um, skills and um, data and uh, systems in place that should be able to provide us with the necessary tools to uh, work on multiple platforms. Um, so, I mean, we have to, and we have to impress upon our uh, leaders and the parties that this is important. Um, however, we can do that. However, we can um, put pressure on whether it's by, you know, making contributions, getting involved, uh, you know, talking to our uh, Democratic leaders and, and making sure they understand how important it is that we, you know, continue to, you know, build out our, our base as well as try to appeal to some of these swing voters. Yes, um, and, and Tim, you had mentioned education, and I agree that some of that data, particularly in the uh, northern Virginia suburbs, shows that that was an issue. But I will tell you this. Even though Glenn Young can talk about critical race theory and uh, talk to, you know, you know, banning books, I don't know that that really was the issue in education that swung voters. I think it may have been the school, school closures, um, you know, because I don't think a lot of these folks have just become book banners all of a sudden. I think it may be that the schools were closed so long uh, to in-person instruction, which if you're a school and a school teacher and an educator, you're like, well, you value us. You actually want your kids learning from us. It's not like we're just replaceable by YouTube videos and, you know, workbooks from the Dollar Tree. Um, we add value. And, and so that's actually a good thing. Um, so they wanted their kids in person, although there were still some real health concerns. And so it was a situation in time if you had to do it again, I don't know that you would have changed a lot, but you had to suffer through it. And so I think that issue, um, which may not recreate itself, hopefully won't recreate itself in the future, may have been the biggest determiner. And I remember um, a few months, or actually probably more like a year ago, we had Ethan Kelly of the D.C. suburbs of Maryland come on the show, and he talked about how some people that were his parents' age that – that were his friends' parents really were upset at how much the schools were closed, and they sounded like they were, you know, leaning uh, Democratic voters, but they were upset on that issue. Um, how much do you think it's, you know, we'll say critical race theory type topics, and how much it was at school closures? I, I, I don't think critical race theory was it, even though even though Republicans are going to beat us over the head with it. I mean, look, it, it, it's a, an issue that they can attack us with that doesn't even exist. Oh, that's that's just wonderful for them. I mean, the only way to answer it is to say nobody teaches it, and if people don't live, listen to you, nobody you know believes that. Um. <laughs> Yeah, school closures 
angered people. The pandemic did a lot of stuff, folks. Uh, it did a lot of uh, bad stuff to Donald Trump's campaign, you know, last year. And and it it did not help Democrats this year. Um, but no one saw this Delta variant coming, you know. Uh, but people expected by now for everything to be back to normal. And, you know, it just wasn't there. I want to run this by you. This is interesting. In Donald Trump's first year, uh, the Republicans lost both those states in statewide elections, in the gubernatorial elections, New Jersey and Virginia. In Barack Obama's first year, same thing happened. In Bush 43's first year, same thing happened. Clinton's first year, same thing happened. Bush 41's first year, same thing happened. Both states went to the other party than the one in the White House. Now, Biden lost a state, won a state. You got to go all the way back to Ronald Reagan to see that repeated, in which in the first year of his presidency, uh, he, he also had a split in the states. What do you make of that? I mean, and I'll go ahead and jump at it first. I do think that the um, country is far less elastic than it used to be. Um, you have such a divided nation. And given how, you know, Virginia has trended so democratic in recent years, I mean, you can't, you know, sell it into too much good uh, for the Democratic Party. And then New Jersey, um, you know, if Phil Murphy wouldn't have been an incumbent, it would have been an open seat, and really, they didn't have the best candidate in um, uh, New Jersey. Had they put up maybe a stronger candidate, it, it could have been zero two. Um, I, I don't think I would take too much solace, you know, from it in my theory. Um, so, but I think it sounds like the two of us are on the same page with the school closing, the critical race theory divide. Catherine, um, on the education question, particularly in Northern Virginia, uh, and it may have been an impact to other places in the state as well, uh, how much do you think the education numbers that moved towards Republicans in almost every poll, including exit polls, shows it did, was not having in-person schooling on how much of it was, um, you know, race-related topics? I think it was a combination of both. I don't think it was necessarily um, specifically uh, the critical race theory, but I think um, Terry McAuliffe's comments that, granted, were taken out of context, I think that just sort of uh, gave the Republicans some momentum to talk about it because he made some comment about how parents shouldn't be controlling what they're children learn in school and I mean I think ultimately we all agree with that but it does sound harsh and then I also I also think that combined with that is um, what Tim was talking about the pandemic and you know everyone thinking that we should be back in that kids should be back in school but the Delta variant and all these other things uh, you know 
called to that. Yes. And so I think that was a frustration for parents. And I think they just, you know, basically took it out on the um, the party that was in power. Um, in New Jersey. Well, uh, um, Catherine, if, if think, we can break in here, we oh, got our um, guest, Jason Stanford, oh, okay. on the line. Uh, welcome back to the show, Jason. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Yes. And we won't ask you to solve in-person schooling in Virginia and the, and the Delta variant. We've got too much to talk to you no about. Um, about uh, forget the Alamo. We won't even make you solve it for um, Central Texas as well, which would be a little more in your wheelhouse. Um, well, I'll tell you what. We have actually solved it in Central Texas. In Austin ISD, one of the largest school districts in the country, we have the lowest COVID rates in all of Texas. We have figured it out. Everyone is back in school, and we are not killing kids. It is not a problem here because you know what we have? Masks. It works. Yes. Well, that's great to hear. And, and you know, you. Austin is a real success story uh, in the state of Texas. But, um, you know, you've written this book that's gotten um, just a, a, a ton of attention, really nationally and probably internationally. Um, uh, forget the Alamo. How did y'all, you and your two co-writers, come up with this uh, project? How did that all unfold? Well, it was about two years ago, and Chris Tomlinson is a, a, a business columnist with the San Antonio Express News and the Houston Chronicle. And he, Brian, and I uh, had a little writers group, and we were having a brunch to talk about how to invigorate this group and you know, create a, a club for introverts so that they felt welcome which is a bigger problem than most people think. And we were talking about the club, and it was fine. And then we started talking about other things, and Chris just started talking about this column he was writing, about how it was kind of a silly idea to spend half a billion dollars to fix up the Alamo because it was a white supremacist myth. And I came to Texas when I was 23. What I knew about the Alamo when I moved to Texas was Pee Wee Herman, and there is no basement <laughs> at the Alamo, which, come to think of it, you know, actually I have learned there is a basement there. Brian moved to Texas at a young age, took Texas history, had never heard of any of this. He believed the myth so much so that he had come and take it socks in college. He was shocked. He had – like neither of us really had any idea that the Alamo story of people coming to Texas to fight for liberty against Santa Ana and to like knowingly give their lives so that others may live wasn't really true. And Brian, who has three New York Times – who had three New York Times bestsellers to his credit, you know, he had written six books. Half of them were, were huge successes. He said, you know what, that would be a great book. And we were like, yeah, that's nice, Brian. And so we started talking about some other things. But clearly there's a subroutine running in Brian's head, and after a few minutes he slams his hand down on the table and says, and you should call it Forget the Alamo. And at that point we all just shrugged and despaired because we realized the next two years of our lives are ruined uh, because we had to write that book. There's just no way you turn away from a good book idea with a great title. Two days later we had a, a book deal. And – the next uh, for the next year, my weekends and vacations are ruined, and that's how the book came about. Yes, um, well, one of the continual themes in the book when I listened to it was when you talked about in I guess it's seventh grade is when Texas history takes place, and Tejanos yep. 
uh, people of um, Latino origin that are from Texas, uh, they go and take the field trip. I guess maybe kids from El Paso don't, but a lot of kids that are in driving distance of San Antonio will go to the Alamo, and everybody goes in, you know, feeling pretty pro-Texas, and they come out divided, um, white kids and brown kids. Um, yep. And that seemed to be a recurring theme throughout the book. Uh, tell us a little about how you researched and found, you know, true stories of, of people that experienced this firsthand. Yeah, well, so a couple of things. I'm going to tell you two stories. We, re- we wanted to interview revisionist historians. We have this idea that there are all these Hispanic historians out there who are telling this revisionist history of the Alamo. Come to find out, Hispanic historians have no patience for the Alamo. They don't care about it. It's white people history. They're doing something else. We sat down with the godfather of Mexican-American history. And he told us about taking seventh grade history in Odessa, child of migrant workers. This is way back when, in the 50s or 60s. And his name is Andres Tijerina, great guy. And he remembers that when they were talking about the Battle of the Alamo in seventh grade history, his teacher pointed at him and made him stand up. And she said, Andy, because she couldn't say Andres. Andy, people like Andy. It might have been his grandparents who killed Davy Crockett. And we're like, that's crazy. We started asking for questions for stories like that. Everyone had a story like that. Everyone. We could have filled the whole book with stories about Texas, you know, the way that Texas history is taught in Texas, making Hispanic Texans, Mexican American Texans feel like they were other. Because Texas history is white people's history in Texas. And we wrote this book about how. This his, the Alamo myth has made Hispanics feel like the other in Texas. And a buddy of mine, David, he's a journalist. He wrote for D- the Dallas Morning News, he, but he's based in San Antonio. He grew up in San Antonio. He said when he grew up in San Antonio, after school they would play Alamo. And in the alleys, the white kids would be the Texans and the, the brown kids would be the Mexicans. Except when they played Alamo, the white kids would win. This is a myth that they have used in Texas for more than a century to say that white people are better than brown people in Texas, and that is why we wrote the book. Yes, that that sounds so familiar uh, to to my experience in Georgia in a different way. They used to always um, reenact the Battle of Jonesboro, which was the final battle before um, Sherman marched to the sea and, you know, captured Savannah and – the Battle of Jonesboro, the Confederates would win. Well, if, if the Confederates have won in reality, um, it, it would have been a very different civil war. So um, they would re- these were adults that would rewrite history, uh, not children. Um, but, but talking about Georgia and then having another question about the Alamo, here in Georgia we have this huge tourism location, Stone Mountain. And it, on one hand, it's this incredible natural landform that's amazing to see. No carving is just wonderful to look at. And so with or without the carving, the, the actual natural landform is going to be there, and it's going to be a tourist attraction. And then back decades ago, that they put um, carvings of Confederate generals on, and then 
made it maybe not at the time controversial for as many people, but some, and now much more controversial. And you still have this tourist attraction that you have to keep for um, different reasons and also for the economic profile of DeKalb County, the metro Atlanta area. Well, in San Antonio, it is a mission. I mean, it had a history before this battle uh, that happened. It's, It's what, if not the oldest, is it the oldest standing building in Texas? That's the thing. There are six missions in San Antonio. Okay. It's only one of them. It's the only one where white people died because of some stupid battle. Like the other five are perfectly preserved and honorably uh, remembered historical missions. It's only the Alamo where history is messed up. So, so is there a way to maybe take all five and make a historical um, tourism profile that would still um, generate income for the city of San Antonio and still bring in visitors? Well, yeah, they've tried that. The U.N. declared them all U.N. historical sites, like on the level of, say, the city of Tequila and everything else. But because the Alamo is so invested as a site of Texas independence, and in, in, in fact, what it means to be a Texan, that they can't actually bring themselves to teach the, the historical truth of what happened at the Alamo. Yes. Well, I visited the Alamo. It was interesting to a point. I, I do know that you talked about how people sometimes are underwhelmed by it. Um, and so, but I, I have been able to view it firsthand. So I feel like I can judge it in that. And it's, it's there. It's interesting. Um, well, let me go ahead and pass it over to Catherine and then to Tim. And I may have some more questions um, later on. Catherine. Thanks for being on with us tonight. I, I was, I read um, an excerpt and a couple of reviews of the, of this book, and I was absolutely fascinated by it. I'm old, and I don't remember exactly what I learned about the Alamo in, when I was in school in Michigan. I just don't remember. Um, but, it was a, but the sort of general idea is the, you know, incorrect. The general idea I had of it is incorrect. And I just think it's really interesting that, it would be like whatever 150 years of wrong history, and I'm I'm just wondering if um, and and not just in Texas. I mean, it's pretty much everywhere. I think. I mean, I don't think anybody's got the right story. Maybe in some schools, in some districts, somewhere. Um, and I just have been thinking about whether you think that has anything to do with the fact that Texas has such a um, strong influence on textbooks, number one. And and did you come to any, like, I mean, is it just purely white supremacism that this story um, from, you know, being factually retold, do you think? Yeah, you know, the story wasn't factually retold from the get-go uh, because right after the Battle of the Elmo happened, Sam Houston had to turn it into a revenge myth on the order of remember, you know, remember Pearl Harbor or never forget 9-11. Like this, right when it happened, it had to be turned into this battle, this myth of we need to get revenge on these people. And 
very quickly, right after it happened, Sam Houston had to turn it into this, okay, we really need to fight now because otherwise they're going to kill us all and we need to get revenge. And the first time we ever heard Remember the Alamo was at the Battle of San Jacinto when uh, they, were, they got the, uh, the cavalry riled up to go take over and to beat the Santa Ana's troops in, the Mex- in New Mexico. So it was – from the get-go, it was a revenge myth. It wasn't ever intended to be an accurate historical retelling. That wasn't its purpose. And from there on, it has been a revenge myth. Uh, LBJ used it as a revenge myth uh, without realizing it was a myth in the Vietnam War. He always referred to – he so constantly referred to uh, the Alamo in the context of the Vietnam War that people – that Larry L. King said he had Vietnam syndrome. Um, uh, after 9/11, members of Congress referred to uh, uh, Santa, uh, Saddam Hussein as a modern-day Santa Ana. It's it's wow. it's always been brought up as this event. Uh, Bruce Winders, who was the Alamo curator, he said he remembers on 9/11 it was a perfectly blue day, like it, the, blue, the sky was blue, not just in New York but in San Antonio too. Is what he remembers, and he was going to go on vacation, but he stayed home because of the 9/11. Well, obviously he couldn't go anywhere, but he went there. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, he remembers people coming home from the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and they would bring pictures of their forward bases where they would name them the Alamo, which is a weird thing to name your base if everyone died at the Alamo. But it's because of the power of this myth of revenge that, oh, okay, this is the good thing that we defend. And people would defend, name their bases in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, the Alamo, because of the power of this myth as a revenge myth and not as, anything, not as a historical construct. People don't name their fort bases in Afghanistan and Iraq Gettysburg. They don't name it Pearl Harbor. Right. But they do the Alamo because it's this thing of, oh, okay, well, we were right, and this is what made us good, and we're going to go kick ass because of it. That's what happens. It's just really kind of remarkable, and I I commend you for, you know, sort of revealing this, you know, long, mistold story, and I hope it gets some attention, and I hope it can, you know, help us to – I mean, it must, it must have, I mean, hearing those stories about the kids um, in school, it must be a horrible, um, you know, no wonder we have, um, we have problems between um, Mexican Americans and Texan Americans and everybody else. If they've started learning about this when they were in school and teachers pointed kids out like they did to that. Um, fellow that you mentioned. I mean, that's a horrible way to um, to be raised. You know, it's just a terrible, uh, you know, ongoing torment. Torment. One hundred percent. It's yeah, fascinating. And it's 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 not just because of the way we we teach it in school. It's, I mean, it's this. It's it's much more pervasive than just school. It's Oh yeah, I remember I, when I, I, I 
when I moved to Texas when I was 23, I was shocked that normally, you know, like just normal people, not actual like, you know, white-shirted racists were referring to Hispanics as Mexicans. Like they would call them, they would say, watch out for Mexicans on the road because they don't have insurance and they're going to crash into you. And, you know, they, they would refer to just Hispanics as Mexicans in Texas. And it, like this is the inheritance of more than 100 years of seeing Hispanics in Texas as Mexicans, as the other of Texans. It's shocking to me now that I didn't see it more clearly before, that they were – they were always here, obviously. This was this because this was in fact Mexico. But we right. <laughs> we we othered them. We we made them oh no, you're not Texans, you are Mexican Americans or you're you know, Mexicans or you're Hispanics, you but you're not Texans. Like that that is the effect that we have of this and so that is why Hispanic Americans are second-class citizens in a country that used to be theirs. It's, it's, um, it's really shocking when you down into it. It's, it's really um, shocking. I mean, it's shocking anyway, but when you dig down into the real history and you learn about these stories and the, these historic markers, it's like, how did, how did, how do we, how did we get there? And then how do we, how do we get out of it? Thank you so much. I'm going to pass it to Tim for his questions, and I think it goes back to David. Thanks so much, Jason. I really appreciate it. You're so welcome. Oh, good evening, Jason. Thank you for being with us tonight. Um, slavery was a major source of tension between the white Texans who settled there and the Mexican government. Do you believe that slavery might have been the spark that started that conflict? I think absent uh, slavery, the white has, uh, there, there would not have been white settlers in Texas. Mm-hmm. The, the only reason Mexico wanted white settlers in Texas is because the Comanches, right? They couldn't get uh-huh. Mexicans to live in Texas, so they said, all right, well, let's get white people to live here, and they'll protect us from the, the Comanches. So they invited them in here, and they had to make an allowance for slavery because the only way they can get white people to live in Texas is to farm cotton, and that required enslaved, uh, an enslaved workforce. And Mexico was an abolitionist country, which it doesn't get enough country uh, uh, credit for. Mm-hmm. All right. So, oh, wow. yeah. So they were um, – I'm sorry. This is just so hard. If it hadn't been for slavery, there would not have been a Texas. It, Mexico would have had, had, had would have had to give up Texas long ago. 
but mm-hmm. because they were able to invite white people into Texas, they were mm-hmm. able to hold Texas. And because they mm-hmm. were able to hold Texas, they had to give it up. So white people came in, farm cotton, had slaves, and they had this conflict. Like at, at a certain point, there were too many white people in, in Texas, and they didn't speak Spanish. They didn't care about being Catholic. And Santa Ana said, okay, we're going to cut off immigration. We're going to like just stop. Like You can't bring slaves in. You can't bring white people in. And white people didn't care, so they kept coming in. And so the first illegal immigrants in Texas were – like Davy Crockett was one of the first illegal immigrants. It was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, now, like any movie buff, I, 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 I love John Wayne, of course. He was, he was a great actor, but obviously the Alamo, the movie was – Pretty much a crop, <laughs> to be honest with you. Yep. Uh, has the portrayal of the Alamo in the modern media made it even more difficult for folks like you to get the real story of what happened there out? Well, yeah. You know, culture beats politics 100% of the time. And yeah, sure. <laughs> it's Disney's portrayal of Davy Crockett that imprinted on boomers. Like if you are mm-hmm. a white boomer, then you believe at a certain point that Davy Crockett was a good guy and he went down swinging. And mm-hmm. to be told that he surrendered and was executed is you – don't, you don't want to believe it even if it's true. It. In the 70s, that was a national catastrophe. That was a huge controversy. Like, mm-hmm. So, yeah, like it wasn't just John Wayne. It was Fess Parker. Fess Parker was a bigger deal. Mm-hmm. That, that's huge. I mean, and we mentioned John Wayne, but it's really culture. Like what does the culture say? And the culture for boomers was, a stoic vision of masculinity for for Davy Crockett and was for and for the Alamo. It was these people knowingly gave themselves for their friends against tyranny and for freedom, and that was like this elemental thing that imprinted on children. That now politicians believe, like the 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 lieutenant governor of Texas, he has a, a like a scale model the Alamo in his office. He has movie posters of the of the John Wayne movie in his office. Mm. And he has pursued um you know, he he's passed laws to enforce a a, a vision of that that, that history as a, an office holder, even though there's no historical record to support it. So, yeah, the culture wins every time. Hmm. Um, and, and, and reading and looking at the history of the Alamo, I, I, I got a couple of questions about the battle itself that, that perhaps you, you can answer for me because you've researched it so thoroughly. But I've got to wonder, why did Colonel Travis sit there with, what, 180 men defending what was probably not a defensible area 
And with like 6,000 Mexican troops bearing down on him, and if you answer that like I think, my second question to that is, did the Alamo defenders die for nothing? Yes. Absolutely they died for nothing. That was the sad thing about it. Is Sam Houston ordered them to abandon the Alamo. Why? Uh-huh. Because you can't just sit there and defend a fort against a superior enemy, you're going to get killed, which is exactly what happened. So first he ordered the first guy to, to abandon it, and that guy took off for some personal reasons, and then he ordered James Bowie to come in, Jim Bowie to come in and abandon it. And that guy like said, no, no, we can, we can win this. Travis, that little wit, <laughs> and I'm a fan, he was 20-nothing, you know. Uh-huh. He... He just wanted to be in command so much. They had given him a command of the cavalry, and they said, oh, by the way, go raise a cavalry. And he couldn't raise a cavalry, so they said, okay, go to the Alamo be in charge of that. That guy just wanted to be in charge of something. So, yeah, no, it was a ludicrous idea to defend the Alamo, and the fact that a 25-year-old was put in charge of it was ludicrous. No, that was idiotic. You, first of all, what? militarily, you can't afford a, you can't you can't defend a, a a fort like that against the superior enemy. Second, when your commanding officer says, "Oh no, abandon the fort and blow it up," you should do that. No, but they wanted to do that because they didn't because of ego. It was stupid. Hmm. Well, I thank you for. <laughs> Confirming my suspicions, and I appreciate everything that you've done with this book. And I'm going to send it back to David for some more questions. David? Yes, um, Jason, I I wanted to piggyback on one topic Tim brought up, and that's Lieutenant Governor um, Dan Patrick. Um, I had heard about your book previously and wanted to listen to it. I actually recommended it at Georgia Public Library, and they now have it on their reading list, and that's where I was lucky enough to get to listen to it. But before that, I had heard about all the controversy um, with Dan Patrick. Um, do you think that's um, impacted in a uh, positive, negative way about how uh, the book is perceived? And then what do you think it did to the reputation of Dan Patrick to take on this fight? Well, unquestionably, it had a huge effect on the book. It was um, – no sooner – so we were scheduled to be uh, – uh, to, to speak at the State History Museum in a virtual event you know, on Zoom, and you know, it wasn't going to be a big deal. At the end of our two weeks, two weeks after we, our book was released, we were going to have 300 or so people come on a Zoom, you know, which isn't – it was nice, and I shouldn't complain, but it wasn't going to be a big deal. And then he started complaining to them, and they canceled it. And no sooner did they cancel it than our book became a huge sensation. So our book was canceled. We ranked about 500 on Amazon, which is not bad. I'm not complaining. But when after like a few, a few days after we were canceled, we ranked 12th on Amazon. And it was because of him. The day after we were canceled, he claimed, he, he claimed credit for it. He said, I canceled this book. 
I didn't want to, didn't want to have this you know engagement at the, our, our state history museum because this was a fact free you know vision of our state history, and it was stupid. And it's embarrassing as a Texan, but it was really, really good as a book, you know, author. That was it was the nicest thing he could have possibly done to us. But as a Texan, it was kind of insulting. You know, like I'm weirdly conflicted about it. So, I, buddy, I don't know what to tell you. You know, he, he did us a solid as as writers, but as Texans, he, he just insulted us as snowflakes. I don't. You helped me through it. Yeah, I, it's um, he's really made himself a lightning rod, and hopefully, um, friend of the show Matthew Dowd can capitalize on that in his race against him. Um, but yep. I don't think he's doing uh, the state of Texas any favors moving into the 21st century further. Well, let me ask you about another Republican politician to me that has a much more complicated uh, story um, with this history, and that would be George P. Bush, um, the no. fact that he is. Latino heritage on his mother's side. Now, I don't know that he grew up in Texas, or did he grow up in Florida? Because I know his father was a politician in Florida for a lot of his formative years, but he still has that Latino background to where it seems like he would have a much more conflicted view of this. Um, What's your read on how he's having to handle this, being a Republican politician where a lot of his future base is going to want to believe this myth, and then his family side. Man, George P. has a bad. So he is a former history teacher, so he knows better. And I saw this video of him on this this panel with with Phil Collins and with uh, Stephen Harrigan and the state senator, the Democratic state senator who represents the Alamo. So this wasn't a jingoistic panel. This wasn't a super liberal panel. And he starts talking – they were talking about the Alamo. And he said he really hoped – and this is 2016, right, when Trump was running and we all assumed Trump was going to lose, which I think was more important than I gave her credit for at the time. And he talked about how he hoped the Alamo could be a – a way to teach the entire history of the place, not just the 13 days of the Alamo siege, but the entire 300 years of what happened there. Because remember, like when we talk about Spanish missions, we're talking about the outer regions, the, the, like the furthest border of the Spanish empire. Like it's just Spain. And like you go up to San Antonio and they got all these Spanish missions there. That was as far as Spain reached, which to me is kind of interesting. But to conservatives, that's irrelevant. They just want to talk about the Alamo. And he said he wanted to talk about the entire history and about everything. And, and he mentioned slavery and how slavery could play a role in how we teach it there. So for a while, George P. Bush was really down with teaching a real version of the history. And then Trump got reelected. Or elected, sorry. And you can't – like. At that point, you really couldn't be that kind of Republican. You couldn't be an inclusive Republican and be just kind of that kind of Republican. And so he had to backtrack. But because he was Bush and because he was him in particular, like Republican partisans didn't believe it. And so he's always having to insist that he really is down with the 13 days of the siege and 
really just wants to teach the conservative parts, but the conservatives who really believe in the Alamo don't believe him. And when he got reelected in 2018, he got the nomination. He was at the Republican convention in San Antonio, not too far from the Alamo, in this big cavernous convention center. And he's talking about how he's blaming the liberal media for teaching are talking about this issue some way, and he had all these Republican dominant, uh, activists there, delegates, booing him and yelling, forget the Alamo, and it's echoing off these concrete walls, and he's looking at them, and it's amazing how indelible family gestures are. I know he's just a nephew, but he looks just like his uncle the president when he like kind of shrunks his shoulders and lifts up his arms and says, <laughs> like that, right? He says, I did win, right? And people are just booing him. I think he's in, a, he's in a tough pickle. Like he should be, by all rights, the heir apparent to this huge political fortune. But because of this moment he's in in politics, I don't think he's going anywhere. Yes, uh, interesting um, dynamic he's got there. Well, one final and person, and you, and you alluded to him was the lead singer of the band Genesis, uh, the Englishman, yep. uh, Phil yep. Collins, a two-parter. One, how in the world did he get interested in this? And then segue that into where um, his collection that he donated to the state of Texas uh, contingently stands. So, yeah, when I, I remember when we had to sell the book on our editor, and, he, and we said, Phil Collins, yes, that's Phil Collins. So. Um, we're talking about the right, same Phil Collins. Everyone knows we're talking about the same Phil Collins. Um, so he got interested like most boomer white dudes got interested. Davy Crockett, they played in England. He uh, played, you know, instead of uh, cowboys and Indians in his backyard, he played Alamo. His grandma cut out her fur coat and made him a little, you know, Davy Crockett hat. He was just into it back then in England. He loved the, the John Wayne movie. And then one of his wives one time bought him a Sam Houston, you know, um, letter, a, 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 some sort of correspondence, and he got into collecting things. And as things went on, one time he just started buying stuff, and he let people know, okay, I'm interested in things. He was not super particular on authenticating whether or not something was real. So he just started collecting – he started amassing this collection, whether or not it was all real. At, so at some point he had what was purported to be the world's largest collection of Alamo memorabilia, and then he had to get rid of it because his wife wanted to move to Florida. And so he gave it to the state of Texas and on the condition that they build a museum, and they had to do it by the year 2021. And the state of Texas is super thrilled to get it, and that is why we're in the mess we are in right now. Yes. Well, it'd be interesting to kind of see how that unfolds because it sounds like it's still a, a fluid situation. Well, Jason, I, I just fascinating to have you on the show. Glad to have you back, uh, being able to talk about this book. We don't want you to be a stranger. Uh, maybe get you on the future to talk about Texas politics. But just leave our listeners where they can purchase the book and the formats it's in, maybe when the paperback comes out. Just share all those details. Well, if, if you want to go to book shop, 
bookshop.org. You can get it at an independent bookstore. Uh, Amazon, of course, has plenty of copies. Uh, And so we're on our third printing right now. By the end of next year, we should be in paperback, and uh, we're hoping to get a Netflix series as well. Oh, that's awesome. We'll have to be on the lookout for that. That's great. Um, Yes. Well, just congratulations on the success of the book, and thanks for coming on the show tonight to share it with us. Paul, thank you so much, and I love being with you guys. And any other time, just let me know. I'll be here every time. Yes. Well, thanks again. Thank you so much. Congratulations. Thank you. You guys are the best. Thank you. Jason Stafford, one of the co-authors of Forget the Alamo, along with Chris Tomlinson and Brian Burrow. Um, just excellent work and, and amazing that the three of them could, um, you know, three people to be a team and seem like from the video research I did, they, they worked together very well on a um, very intriguing book. Well, guys, we've got just uh, about four minutes, and um, I have a feeling that the infrastructure bill is going to be still a topic by next week. Um, just as the Atlanta um, mayoral race will be, but I, I want to spend the four minutes on the Atlanta mayoral race. Uh, it is a runoff. Uh, Felicia Moore and Andre Dickens uh, made the runoff. Uh, Andre Dickens uh, kind of seemed to catch fire at the end and um, passed up Kasim Reed for that other spot. And unlike past Atlanta mayoral runoffs where it was two candidates that were very different um, and maybe who their supporters were. And there was a very big contrast, I think, at least two of those occasions. Mary Norwood was one of the two um, uh, people that made the runoff. This time seems like it might be less contentious and possibly more issues-focused. Catherine, am I just being overly hopeful, or does it seem that way to you in the city? Well, I'm hoping that it's that way. I'd really like to avoid any, you know nasty um personal attacks uh we had enough of that in the primary or in the general before the runoff um there's a lot of issues to talk about um you know felicia moore and andre dickens aren't that far off on on a lot of this a lot of the issues so um it's really going to be a question of i think of uh, a lot of it's going to be a question of style and um experience. Uh, I think people are going to be evaluating those things. And uh, of course, you know, their approach to specific um, matters. So it should be interesting. I know there's some uh, debates already set up by some organizations. So hopefully we'll be hearing from them. Um, But it should be an interesting, uh, I I agree. I think it's going to be, it's a different, um, a different landscape than it has been in the past. So it should be interesting to see how it all uh, turns out. Yes. Uh, Tim, um, what do you think this race is going to turn on? Because to me, it seems like a very different race in the runoff than what we had going in um, with more candidates. It, it does, but um, I, I'm, I'm hopeful as you are that, that we're going to have a, 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 a rather quiet runoff, uh, n- not a lot of bickering and back and forth and that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, you know, you I got a I got a kudos, Catherine. You you seemed to indicate last week that this was uh, Moore's race to lose, 
and it certainly appears that uh, we we are going to have Felicia Moores, the next mayor of Atlanta. Of course, that that could change, but right now that's the direction it's headed in. Well, yeah, I, I want to ask one more. Go ahead, Catherine. I want to see if this Andre Dickens can he catch fire and pick up a lot of these other candidates' votes and catch her. That's the big question. You know, we always have that question in runoffs in in Georgia. You know, does the person who's leading coming out of the general uh, lose momentum or gain momentum? Um, But the good thing is that, uh, you know, Andre's young. If he doesn't prevail, he's got plenty of time to run again or, you know, run for city council president at some point or, you know, what, what, or, or, you know, or some other office. So I think we're in good shape um, for the future. I think by uh, we, we, we have a little bit of a, we'll have a little bit of a bench when this is all over, which I think is a really good um, sign for the future. Yes. Well, um, great show tonight. A little chance to talk about elections from Tuesday and then have um, Jason talk about that fascinating book. Next week, we're going to have John Ryder come back on the show, our Arizona political expert, and um, he's going to give us a preview of some 2022 races, and probably we're going to get an in-state analysis of exactly who um, one of the most intriguing political figures, Kristen Cinema, what kind of her motivations are. So until next week, it's been the Kudzu Vine. Good, Good night, night y'all. guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force?